You're an entrepreneur looking for an investor. What return is the investor looking for? A successful rate of return would be two times the amount of money invested or three times the amount of money invested. And what about an angel? We're typically looking at an early exit so that we see a smaller return three to five times in three to five years. A family-owned small business winds up acting like a bank. The problem you have today as a small business owner is extending credit. If you don't extend the credit, you can't ship any goods. You are trapped by when people will pay you, and not everybody adheres to the terms that we have. This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller. Harvard MBA, and Senior Lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at ways entrepreneurs get investors. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Money. In business, those who have it get to make the rules. But as you acquire funding for your startup, your obligations increase faster than your cash flow. And the options for the entrepreneur, venture capital, credit card bootstrapping, private equity, bank loans? Where do the choices begin and where do they end? Today we're gonna talk about, you guessed it, the money. Are you a book smart executive? Is your brilliant business plan collecting dust? If you haven't gotten the memo, it's all about effective implementation. How are the numbers 24, 63, and 82 related unless you're calling a football play or preparing for the math section of the SAT? But to Don Nelson, they're not just numbers, but actually the registrations he needs in order to do his job. Don, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me. You've worked as a CFO, an investment professional. You've counseled entrepreneurs in getting funding. You've raised money for funds. Interesting background. How transferable are those skills amongst those diverse areas and industries, et cetera? You have to look back in the history of my career. I started as a CPA, and I did that for close to a decade. Then I was a principal investor for close to a decade. And at the same time of that principal investing, I was overlapping fundraising. And are you principal investor for your own account, for other people? For my own account. But you get to see and have a great deal of perspective of what is good and what is bad. Counseling entrepreneurs, you can tell them what people are looking for, and namely investors are looking for, and how to get to present their company or their opportunity to deliver what the investors are looking for. These days, we are working through a jobless recovery and a weak economy, but yet the financier's mission continues to be to maximize the rate of return. Yeah. Has that perspective been tempered at all? The temperament tends to come nowadays from the entrepreneurs, the CEOs. They have learned that putting leverage on top of the equity that's given to them from the investor, for example, in the LBO space. LBO is? Leverage buyout yeah. space. The investor in that space wants to use as much leverage because you get better returns but the CEO doesn't want to do that because it puts his company in a much more precarious position yes, exactly if they don't perform as intended exactly that's where it's become tempered because the CEOs have learned from talking to other CEOs because that's where they tend to learn a lot from is talking to other people who have done it as CEOs in the past from the perch that you're sitting on, what do you consider to be a successful rate of return? Well, in my business, a successful rate of return would be two times the amount of money invested or three times the amount of money invested. And on an internal rate of return basis, 
one would say that it would be 25 to 30 percent return, somewhere in that area. So this is from the time the capital was first invested to the time the exit strategy occurs, or almost on an annual basis? No, it's from the time that the money is invested in the business and then to the time that the money is returned to the investor. So it's measured over time that way. And do you care whether the exit strategy is a sale versus an IPO? IPOs tend to bring higher values, but they also tend to put the management team and the business underneath the lens of the public. So there's a little bit more difficulty there because you have a management team that's never managed in the public before. Whereas with a trade sale, it's here's the business, thank you very much, and here's your money. And do you find that people get stock or cash in terms of that trade sale occurring? It can come in a matter of different ways. It could be stock, it could be stock and cash, and it could be earned out over time if you hit certain certain thresholds of performance on the business that was um, purchased by the company. Do you have a preference? I prefer the trade sale just because... Meaning paid in cash or yes. paid in stock? I think I would prefer paid in cash. It's over and there's not still more time at risk with the capital. And then you can choose to invest that cash as Correct. you see fit, Correct. including in the parent that might have right. bought you, etc. If right. you wanted to, that's right. how you could do that, yes. From the entrepreneur's perspective, they jokingly refer to VCs as being vulture capitalists, but yet more and more entrepreneurs in good times and in bad tend to keep going back to VCs for funding. Why is that? The VCs can tell if something's good or bad and they've gone down the path before with an entrepreneur who's had an idea and helped them develop it. Whereas the entrepreneur may say, if I went on my own, I wouldn't have the experience around me. I wouldn't have the person who could help me recruit a management team. I wouldn't have access to the markets and the channels to sell the product into. So the VC gives a lot more than money. It's their experience, their leadership, all those areas. Do you think it's still possible for an entrepreneur to bootstrap based on credit card balances or take a mortgage on their house, or are you still advocating that they go for professional management? You could do it either way. Bootstrapping you could do, especially in the internet space, because the world of internet commerce has become much more pedestrian. You don't have to be a $25 million company to put together a company or an opportunity and sell something and get revenues from it. So let's talk about those numbers, 24, 63, and 82. How long did it take you to pass those tests? Looking back on it, was all of the time investment worth it? The time and investment were all worth it. And when you've said those numbers, I'm a math guy, so I'm sitting here trying to say, are they prime numbers? Why is he (laughs) saying these numbers? How do they fit together? And Yeah, they were difficult tests to take, but they're tests that I need for my company, Harkin Capital, we're a broker-dealer. And so those are the tests that I needed to take, and they take about a couple weeks to study for each of them. And would you say you continue to use that knowledge today? My business is pretty myopic because I only do private companies, but we use all that information all the time. Don Nelson, Managing Director of Harkin Capital. Al Gore might have originally created the information superhighway we now call the Internet. But how about the people who have programmed the code which allows you to press send on emails with such ease? Coming up, a family-owned small business winds up acting like a bank. But first, what is an angel investor as the language of business continues? Once again, here's Greg Stoller. 
He has over 25 years experience in internet technologies as a management consultant, engineer, and analyst. And now he's parlayed those experiences into a mentor and advisor to entrepreneurs. His office, and this is my favorite part, is any coffee shop that's within driving distance. Ben Lentower, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you very much. What is an angel investor? It's an affluent person who invests in, provides capital for business startups. The most important word there is individual, and that's what I think is most important about being an angel investor, is we don't have responsibility to limited partners. We don't have fiduciary responsibility, except perhaps to our spouses. The most important management team. (laughs) Right. We can invest for a variety of reasons, including emotional ones. But prevailing wisdom says that any investment that's worth its weight in gold is going to go through multiple rounds of financing. You're going to go through dilution, etc. What is your incentive rationale for investing so early? If I wanted to make money, I'd probably just leave it with my investment manager. So my primary motivation is actually to keep busy. I had my own company. I like giving back. And so um, Going at this seed stage is where I think I can have the most impact. I started my own company. I've been playing with companies now for um, five years as a professional angel investor and for longer than that as an informal advisor. So I think I have some value to bring. And where I can have the most impact is at the early stage when you're developing your idea and developing your business. But it sounds like you're going to play a tennis game. What do you mean playing with companies? I'm involved because I want to help out. A lot of my colleagues are involved for the money, and they may be better at it than I am, or they may be deluding themselves. We don't really know yet. But we're typically looking at this stage for an early exit if we're angels, so that we see a smaller return, three to five times return on our money in three to five years. That's unlike a VC. Is that considered to be an acceptable or a good rate of return? That's a very nice internal rate of return. Okay. So that's, it looks good. It doesn't get you the big hits that you see from a Twitter or a Google, but it does get you enough money to keep playing. And we are always hoping for that outlier, that lottery ticket that brings back a Twitter return. So let's assume, though, that you do find that lottery ticket and a professional financier, venture capitalist, private equity company comes along and then wants to fund them in rounds three, four, or five. Where does that leave you? Well, we still have our little piece if we haven't been washed out. We hope to see a bump in valuation as we move along. That's the hope. We do get washed out. I have a couple that have had that experience, but I've also had some that have had follow-on rounds where we live alongside the VCs quite happily. Once you give these folks a check, do you say, good luck, I'll talk to you in a month? Or after you give them a check the next day, are you sitting with them around the board table or around the C-level suite helping them plan it and run it, et cetera? Well, that varies greatly based on the investment. I've, when I started doing this investment, I joined a couple of angel groups in the Boston area. And the reason I did that is I didn't really understand the investment landscape. And honestly, I didn't have that much broad business experience. So most of those deals early on, I was basically a follower. Since then, I've gained enough knowledge to become dangerous. And so I like to be more involved in more recent ones. So I have board seats on some of my investments, and I'm an informal advisor or a formal advisor to others. Ben, how do these companies find you, or how do you find them? I do a good deal of mentoring. I'm a mentor and a judge at Mass Challenge. I work with the Capital Network, TCN, here in Boston, and so I get out there. I never turn down a speaking opportunity, and the idea there is to get the deal flow. I want to see the companies early. Sometimes they're ready for funding. More often, they're not. 
but I can help advise them. And I'm a risk junkie, so I like that truly early stage. And I think I add the most value at that stage. So by being visible, it's a conscious decision that I get out there and offer my mentorship to anybody who's willing to take it. Respecting that every company, every industry, every deal is different, in general, what percentage of the equity are you buying into as an angel investor? The rule of thumb in the angel groups, which is where I do most of my work, is that we'll take about 25 to 30 percent of the company. The deal size ranges from maybe a third of a million to a million and a half, and obviously it's a bell curve, so there are some tails beyond that. But that's the rule of thumb. Very important to us is to make sure that the entrepreneur has enough skin left in the game, that they are motivated, and you spoke of further rounds down the road. We expect to see further funding down the road, even if it comes from us. We want to make sure the entrepreneur has enough headroom in the company to stay motivated down the road as well. And are there any specific terms at the angel level that are going to differ appreciably from those at the later stage rounds of financing? Um, No, they're structured much the same. The Angel Capital Association has published a set of terms that are based on the National Venture Capital Association terms. They're very similar. Equity, it's a preferred round usually. We will take some liquidation preference, usually 1x. I discourage us taking more than that on the theory that the next guy down the road is going to take more than that as well. And 1x means? Well, that means that we get our money back first, and then we participate in the liquidation of the companies. If I invest $10,000, I get $10,000 back, and then I get my percentage of the company after that. So it's a little bit of double dipping, and some entrepreneurs don't like that. But at the end of the day, though, you guys are putting up the funding. We're putting up the early funding, and we're hoping to get a risk-adjusted return that makes sense. And I assume that all of you, if there are 10 of you in an angel investing group, you're going to share in those proceeds either proportionally or equally based on the amount of money you put in. That's the idea, is that we buy shares of the company. Typically, we invest as individuals, although there are some funds in the area, but typically we're individuals and we just take our pro rata share of the proceeds. Ben Litauer, successful angel investor. So do you think hearing the phrase, how can we help you, is an urban myth? How about receiving a return phone call after you only leave a single message? Still to come, a family-owned small business winds up acting like a bank. Next, on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Swapons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swapons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design, anti slip sides. Drop test protection, past and exceeded. Choose your swaps. There are thousands of great designs sports, travel, nature, and more. Or create your own swaps. Upload your pics or your business logo. Add custom frames. Swapons. They started Infinite Swap for you. Live it, love it, swap it. Swapons.com. You're listening to the language of business. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. We're on location at a third generation owned family business where the owner actually wants you to walk all over him. Weller Carpets in Norwood, Massachusetts. This isn't high end retail with white glove treatment, it's factory direct, where pricing and selection are the draw. This operation is all about managing your costs. But there's a problem. If your customers don't pay you on time, you're unwillingly becoming a lender and doing so via interest-free financing. What's up with that? Dan, thank you for having us here today. You're welcome. As we look around Weller Carpets, I don't see any FDIC logos or any FDIC signs indicating that you're a lender. 
How have you suddenly become a bank to your customers? The problem you have today as a small business owner is extending credit. If you don't extend the credit, you can't ship any goods. You are kind of trapped by when people will pay you, and not everybody adheres to the terms that we have. The only hope we have is that people will uh, come as close as they can to paying, but we end up extending terms to people who need more help and more time to pay. And what are some typical payment terms? Our traditional terms are net 30, but we have found ourselves having to go as far out as 90 days with some customers we prefer not to. In an event we have to stretch out that far, then we look to have some kind of payment plan to get us to that point so that by the end of the 90 days we've actually paid the invoice off. Now, is this an issue that's endemic to Weller Carpets, or is it a general business trend? I don't know if it's a business trend. I could tell you within our industry it is. Um, I've spoken to uh, many of my competitors and others in the industry, and I know that our business in general is struggling with collections right now. If you were to ask, uh, I would think, eight out of ten small rug dealers, they would tell you, or carpet dealers, they would tell you that they spend more time now on the phone collecting money than they do actually getting new business. That's a problem. Now, obviously, a last resort is to take your customers to small claims court or to a larger forum like district court. What are some interim steps, however, that you can pursue before you just sue the bad guys? The best possible outcome is communication. Unfortunately, not everybody is willing to take your calls and not everybody is willing to discuss it. And I think that that's a bigger problem where people are running away from the problem. I think that we would... And I think most business owners today, especially small business owners, family businesses, would be happy to discuss with people what their issues are because we have the same problem. We have have the same issues. So we understand. But if communication is the key and if people aren't willing to discuss it and talk to us about it, then it becomes very, very difficult to move forward. If I don't get a return phone call from somebody, then I have no recourse but to take other action. And we prefer not to do that. And and luckily, in only very few cases have we actually had to take that action. On the other side of the coin, Dan, what do you tell your own suppliers if you don't have enough money to pay your bills on time? The good news is we try to stay on top of our bills as best we possibly can. But there are times that we have some challenges. And I think an open line of communication is the key. We talk to our I wouldn't call them lenders. We talk to our vendors. We explain the situation. We talk to them frankly about where we are and what the situation is. If we make a promise, we adhere to that promise. We pay the bill when we say we'll pay it. But like anybody else, we have some of those challenges. So many people have a dream of going off on their own and starting their own business. Having done this for as many years as you have, do you think you've met your dreams? (laughs) That's a very good question. I've met my dreams. It's funny you, you say dreams. I grew up in this business. This is a third generation in the carpet business. And uh, I resisted it most of my adult life. It wasn't until, um, I think it was about 14 or 15 years ago that I actually joined my father in business. And I'm very happy to be in this business. My father, soon to be 85 years old, is still an active participant in the business. It's been a real great experience for me to work with him and to see our business materialize and change over the years. I think it's challenging for him to see that changes difficulties. He ran a business the way he ran a business. And today we've had to some extent recreate the wheel and change the way we do business. But living the dream, I'm not sure that it qualifies as living the dream, but very happy here. We have a very solid, good family business and we're very happy. What advice would you have for others who want to do the entrepreneurial thing or go off on their own or work for a family business? I would encourage it. I think it's a terrific thing. In any business partnership, in any you know, relationship, there are challenges. Certainly dealing with family can present some of those challenges. But I think overall, this has been an experience that I'll cherish. And I'm very glad I made the decision to 
I was living in New York City at the time to leave New York City and come back home to the Boston area and go back into the family business. I'm very happy to have done that. And I would recommend it to others, yes. What keeps you up at night about your own business? Same as anybody else. Is uh, Where's the next order coming from and how am I going to pay all my bills? I don't know anybody that owns a small business today that doesn't have those same fears. But we take it a day at a time. Every day we, we look for new business and every day we try to service our customers the best we possibly can. And unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, we spend a few too many hours collecting money. Thank you, Dan. Dan Weller, successful small business owner and entrepreneur. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. In 2019, we'll have some great new content coming up on the language business. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.